Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Good morning. Happy New Year. It's good to be with you this new year. God bless you. Uh, I have a couple of little housekeeping things that I'd like to share with you before I begin preaching. Remember, this year I have encouraged you to consider reading through the Bible in the year 2020. And so, yesterday you could have started. And if you started yesterday, you should have read the beginning of the Bible. If you didn't start yesterday, you can read the beginning today and a little bit more. And then you'll be caught up. And wouldn't that be great? Uh, The... uh, if you, I have linked on our website and on our Facebook page the One Year Bible Online. And the One Year Bible Online gives you a passage from the Old Testament, New Testament, a psalm and a proverb every day. And that's a great way to read through the Bible in a year. It is, it's easy, it breaks it up, it, doesn't, it means that you never get bogged down in a full week of Old Testament law. You always have the New Testament to turn to. You never, if you're in the one-year Bible online, yesterday you read the creation story in Genesis, and you also read a genealogy in Matthew. And so, you know, it balances itself out. It's, uh, it helps you get through, motivates you to continue on. If you'd rather read from cover to cover, you can read from cover to cover. And if you want to read the Bible from cover to cover, if you do the math, you need to read three and a quarter chapters a day, three and a quarter. So if you read three, three days in a row, and then four on the fourth day, I think if my math isn't wrong, I'm quick at math. I'm not accurate at math. So that's what my math says. And so if that, if if you do that, I think you'll get through the book. If you do three chapters one day and four, or three chapters three days and four the fourth day, I think that'll get you through. Somebody will have to correct me on my math and We'll figure that. Post on Facebook if I've, I've totally flubbed the math. The, um, and then some people this year, uh, my wife included, is, has decide, have decided, people have decided, is there a problem with my mic? Am I doing something wrong? I'm fine? Okay. Uh, the, uh, if, the, if you're interested in reading through a chronological Bible, The one-year Bible online has a chronological order that you can read the Bible through, so it takes the stories and it sorts them out, it it puts the Psalms where they fit historically, and then it takes the New Testament and tries to recreate, as best it can, a, a chronological order for the stories of Jesus and into the, into the history of the church, tries to put the letters in chronological order as best as possible. So that's another option for you. Those resources are available to you on our website. We have links to chronological reading, to the one-year reading that has uh, Psalm, Proverb, New Testament, Old Testament every day. And so you can find those on firstnaz.com slash this week are, are those links. And I'd encourage you to do that. I'd also encourage you to take part on our Wednesday evening studies. This is a study through that book that Christine showed us at the beginning of the service through the book Way, Truth, and Life. 
and it's a, it's a book by David Busick. It's a great book that gives a lot of our theology of grace as, as Nazarenes. Who we are as a church in the Nazarene is based on this idea that God has given us incredible grace, grace to transform our lives, that God does not give us grace just to save us and leave us as dreadful sinners, but God has given us grace that we could actually live in victory over sin in this life. And it's it's an incredible, it's, a, it's an audacious statement. It's an audacious thing to claim that we could have victory over sin in this life. But we, we really believe it. We really believe that God wants to transform our lives. And so this book walks us through how we understand that grace to work and where we see it biblically, how we, how we see it biblically in, in our lives. And so I'd encourage you to, to engage with that study uh, be here on Wednesdays at 6 for a delicious meal, and then at 6.30 we get going, and uh, we, we're usually done in about an hour, and so by 7.30 you'll be, you'll be heading home, or chatting and cleaning up and fellowshipping, which I hope happens. Well, as promised, this month I'm talking about uncomfortable topics. That's why I have a lot of introductory material this morning. I just kind of beating around the bush, getting to, to talking about things that make me uncomfortable. And this, this Sunday, I'm talking about money. Money makes me less uncomfortable than some of the other things that I've promised to talk about and I can't take back now. And so I'm, uh, I'm going to start with money because uh, it's, it's less uncomfortable. Some people don't like that we ever talk about money in the church, right? And I try to be a preacher that preaches from the entirety of the Bible. The, I, I try to, to preach from Old Testament and New Testament. I try to preach from, from pretty much everything in the Bible. And the reality is that the Bible talks a lot about money. If you, if you look up the word money in the New International Version, you'll find it 111 times. Money appears 111 times. So, you know, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, every third day it's going to talk about money. If you look up the word treasure, that appears a whole bunch of times. I, uh, I might have a note of how many. Well, a lot of times. Wealth appears 117 times, wealth. And so that, that one gets talked about a lot. It, silver and gold are mentioned a collective 700 times in, in the New International Version. And often silver and gold is related to money, how we, how we spend it, what it's used for. And so the Bible talks a lot about money. And, and some, people, some people say, ah, the church talks about money too much. Well, the Bible talks about money, and Jesus talked about money. And so if, if we're going to be looking at the entirety of Scripture, occasionally we're going to come around, we're going to talk about money, and we're going to, ha to, have, to have to think about it. Jesus talked about, about money a lot in parables. He used money as an illustration in a lot of his parables. Sometimes he compared the kingdom of heaven to money, to units of money, to coins. He compared he, he also talked about um, money as an illustration of, of sin, that there is sin, money is used as, as a fill-in for sin in people's lives in parables. So it goes both ways. He, he told the disciples when they went out to proclaim his coming, he, he sent 70 disciples out to proclaim his coming. He told them, don't take a penny with you. Don't take no money when you go. Uh, and he praises the widow in the temple who brings in her offering, and, and he says she gives of all that she she gives all she has, 
And, and he, Jesus contrasts that with the, the wealthy who give out of their abundance. The early church taught a lot about money and taught a lot about money. In the early church, we saw the, the church in Jerusalem pooling their funds. They, they would pool their funds and, and they sold their property so, to provide for one another's needs. And when extreme persecution hit the early church in Jerusalem, the early church in, in Jerusalem became almost destitute to the point that Paul challenged the churches that he had planted around the world to collect an offering to, to help support the Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering. And in our world, we think a lot about money, don't we? I, I spend some time every week thinking about money. Uh, I pay bills. I wonder how to get more, or I wonder what to do with it if I have a little bit. And uh, we, we think about money, don't we? It's just something that it's a necessary evil. Whether we like it or not, we, we, think, we think about money. And as followers of Jesus, we're not supposed to worry about anything. We're not supposed to worry about money. We're not supposed to worry about our provision. We're not supposed to worry about our wealth. But there is one way that the Bible is particularly worried about money. The Bible, the New Testament especially, has one really, really severe worry about money. And we'll get to that in a little bit. My project in this sermon series is to take the, the 30,000 foot view of Scripture, to, to take those 111 references to money plus silver plus treasure plus wealth and, and try to give some general categories that money fits in in the Bible and to look at the way that, that we understand biblically how, how the idea of money is used throughout, throughout Scripture. And so today I'm going to give you some broad categories that we find money mentioned in the Bible, and then I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how you ought to spend your money, because that's why you came to church this morning, right? Find out how I think you should spend your money? Okay. The, the first way that we see money being used in the Bible is just as a, a means of transaction. It is, it is, money is referenced probably the majority of times that money is referenced in the Bible. It is the basic unit of economic trade. So we see money being used for goods and services and for paying taxes. That's what we see a lot of in the Bible. In, in Testament, the uh, Abraham buys a, a tomb for his wife Sarah, and he pays he pays money, he pays silver for it. In in the New Testament, we see the same thing happen. Judas betrays Jesus, and he receives thirty pieces of silver. He receives thirty pieces of silver, and when he tries to give the money back because he thinks he made a mistake by betraying Jesus for thirty pieces of silver. The priests say, well, we can't put this money back into the offering because it's blood money, so they purchase a field with that 30 pieces of silver to bury the poor. So we see, we see money trade hands for, for uh, goods and land, uh, particularly quite a bit in, in the Bible, in both Old and New Testament. We also see money trade hands for services. In the book of Ezra, Ezra is charged with rebuilding the temple after the Babylonians have destroyed it. And Ezra takes the money and he, he it, the book of Ezra mentions money, just straight up money. He had money and he manages the money and he pays the workers. Uh, the Bible is in favor of, of fair wages for, for honest labor. And so he, he pays the workers for their labor. 
Peter uh, finds a coin in a fish's mouth in order to pay tax for the disciples and Jesus in one of the more interesting stories of somebody earning living in the Bible. Uh, Peter finds a, a, a coin in a fish's mouth that he catches. Peter or Jesus talks about money as if its purpose is paying taxes, right? Jesus says, whose image is on the coin? It's Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And so if our purpose is to give ourselves to God, the purpose of money, according to the same logic, is to pay taxes. And so we have that to look forward to if we get any money in our hands. There's practical wisdom, there's significant practical wisdom in the Bible about money. Over and over, the Bible has, has practical, everyday advice about how to handle our money. I'll give you a few examples. In Proverbs 13, 11, uh, I think I have it here in our, in our uh, PowerPoint, it says, dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. The Bible is not opposed to saving money. The Bible is not opposed to saving money. Now, we're going to talk about hoarding money selfishly in another context, but the Bible is not opposed to, to storing away for a rainy day. The Bible is not opposed to, to people having enough for, for the future, to think, think forward about how, to use, how money will be used. Uh, the, the Bible is not opposed for, to people saving up for major purchases. I think the Bible is on board with, with that kind of behavior, with, with, taking, with wise stewardship. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, we, we read, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is looking at all of the silly ways human beings act, one of the silly ways that human beings act is that we're never satisfied with what we have. We always want more. You ask the person who has a little bit of money how much is enough, well, a little bit more. You, you never can put a dollar amount on how much is enough because enough is always just a little bit more, right? And that's the wisdom of, of the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. Also in Proverbs 22, 7, we, we read, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. This is a phrase that if, you're, if you listen to the Christian financial guru, uh, Dave Ramsey, he loves to say the slave is, or the borrower is slave to the lender. And, uh, and I recommend Dave Ramsey. He, he has saved us uh, lots of arguing over money because we've pretty much been on the same page because we've been willing to, to submit to somebody who's wiser than us about finances. And, uh, and that's been, been helpful. There's a non-biblical quote that I'm going to use that summarizes a lot of biblical wisdom on, on finances, though. Uh, there's a non, this non-biblical quote, it comes from John Wesley. It, it really does encapsulate a lot of what the Bible says about money. Wesley said, with regard to money, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And when Wesley, when Wesley said, make all you can, he obviously, he, well, maybe obviously, he, he meant to make it honestly. The Bible, the Bible is not in favor of extortion. The Bible is not in favor of crime. When, when uh, it says, make all you can, make it in an honest fashion. The Bible is, is particularly opposed to oppressive financial practices uh, and, and economic practices that keep the poor poor. 
the, the Bible, Israel in the Old Testament was not allowed to sh- charge interest on loaned money to the poor or to foreigners or to people who were, who were vulnerable in their society. Imagine that. Imagine that. The most vulnerable didn't pay interest. This is, this is significantly backward to our current culture, where, where those who are most vulnerable financially end up paying the most if they want to borrow money, right? And so, the, the law in Israel said, you can't, you can't make a profit off of selling things to foreigners or to the poor. You can't make a profit, even off of selling food, like selling your goods, you can't make a profit the, the, the Old Testament law commanded the Israelites. God's people were supposed to allow people to get out of poverty. God's people were supposed to allow the poor to get out of poverty. They were never to use their own financial strength or ability or, or gain to keep the poor poor. That is, that is a significant principle for Israel in the Old Testament law. And, and in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, there, there is value on the idea of living to make, uh, or to working to make a living, of working to make a living. The, the Bible is in favor of fair wages for honest work. And the Bible recognizes that, that working provides dignity to people, that we, we, are, we are created to work. We are created to, to be people who who make with our hands. We're created in the image of the creator God. And so when we create with our hands, we, we reflect God's creative image to this world. We are made for work. But the Bible also recognizes that those who work ought to be compensated for, for their work. The, those who, who work ought to receive a fair wage. And so employees ought to receive a fair benefit for the, the good that they gain for their employers. This is also a significant point of tension in culture nowadays where, where stockholders and CEOs often make an unfair share of, of what is made by those who work hard in our society. And it makes, it makes a Christian person think. Uh, it makes a Christian person think who benefits from this system, doesn't it? It makes me think about the way that I benefit from, from the stock market and, and from the fact that often the, the benefit that I gain is, is gained at the expense of workers who are not always par- paid a fair wage. Uh, it, it at least ought to make a Christian person think. It at least ought to make us reflect on, on how we benefit from the system that is tilted toward the poor staying poor and the wealthy becoming wealthier. And, and if we don't see that in our system, we need, to be, we need to be carefully attuned to our culture and to our world, uh, where very truly the wealthy are becoming wealthier, while the poor are not given every opportunity to get themselves out of poverty. We ought to be aware of this, this system. So Wesley says we, we ought to make all that we can. He says you ought to save all you can, too. And, and this, this isn't about hoarding again. This is about thrift. When Wesley said save all you can, he meant buy used clothes when you can. 
He meant, he meant be thrifty. Uh, he, he meant don't go out and buy the, the newest and greatest every time the newest and greatest gets, gets updated. And there's, uh, in the Bible, there, there is significant wisdom on, on thrift, but there's also significant wisdom. The, the Bible makes no heroes out of those who spend their money uh, just like frivolously. Right? The, the parable of the prodigal son is an example of this. The, the prodigal son, he goes out and he spends his inheritance on wild living. He is no hero for that. He's not a hero. In fact, he's kind of a villain because he, he's gone out and he has spent his father's hard-earned money in wild living. Uh, but neither do, does the Bible make heroes out of those who selfishly hoard what they have. Those who save at the expense of others are, are not heroes in the Bible. Jesus tells the parable of the wealthy man who, who is so satisfied with all that he has. He says, I think I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns because I have so much. He, he says to himself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, eat, drink, and be merry, that's from Ecclesiastes. That's a, that's a biblical phrase. Uh, but it's a biblical phrase uh, of a life that is not well spent. That is the, the essence of vain living, to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. To say, eh, might as well enjoy it while it lasts. That is, that is the opposite of biblical wisdom. And so when the wealthy person says to himself in his heart, ah, I have so much stored up, I might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. It, Jesus says, then the very next day, the Lord comes to that man and says, you fool, don't you realize this very day your soul is demanded of you? He, and he dies and he just leaves a pile of torn down barns waiting to be rebuilt. He leaves nothing, nothing behind of value. I read an interesting quote recently. The author Stephen Covey uh, tells a story of two, two men at a funeral and one wanted to know how much the, the other, the, the deceased was worth. He asked one of the other guys, he said, so how much did he leave? And, and the other answered, he, he left it all. Uh, we, we don't get to take any of it when, when we go. We, we saving for ourselves uh, turns out to be kind of a foolish, foolish thing in the eyes of, of Jesus and in the eyes of the Bible. So, so the Bible may tell us to be thrifty, but the purpose isn't putting away for ourselves only. The purpose of, of thrift is not only to, to satisfy our, our desire to have a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. The, the plan for thrift is so that we can do the last part, which is to give all we can, to give all we can. The Bible's wisdom on giving is, is exemplified by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul quotes from Jesus. It's not a quote that's found in, in uh, the Gospels at all, but the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, he, he's quoting Jesus. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's really the, the biblical maxim on, on giving, that we, we are blessed when we have the opportunity to give. And, uh, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. The real question, though, that I want to answer in this sermon is, is the sort of moral and ethical value of money. And what, what does the Bible really say about how money affects our souls? How many money affects who, our, our, 
our most important parts, right? Our heart. How, how many really is, is viewed by the biblical authors in terms of our spiritual well-being. And, and there are really two ways that we see money, uh, money being used to, to express like a, a person's eternal, eternal worth. The, the first is that we see in, in the Bible, money is often viewed as a blessing from God. This is especially true in, in the Old Testament where we see the, the wealthy becoming wealthy as a result of or as evidence of God's blessing in their lives. So the Old Testament patriarchs in the book of Genesis, Abraham, he goes from his, his father's home in Ur of the Chaldeans, he goes to Canaan, and he goes with, with his nephew Lot, and, and Abraham and Lot, they are blessed by God and their possessions accumulate to the point that they have to go their separate ways because their, their hired men are fighting over good pasture land. And, and that expansion of their resources is viewed in Genesis as God's blessing over them. We see it again in, with Jacob. Jacob goes and he works for Laban to, to earn a bride and while Jacob is working for Laban, his, his soon-to-be father-in-law, Laban's, Laban's wealth grows incredibly. And, and it is viewed as, it, Genesis tells us that's because God blessed Laban. God blessed Laban while Jacob was working for him. And Laban uh, divided his wealth up with, with Jacob, and he gave Jacob a significant portion of his wealth so that Jacob could go back home to, to his father's house and, or his father's land, and he, he goes with basically a small city. Uh, we, when we read about the, this, these flocks and hired people and family, this huge family that Jacob had when, when he left Laban's home, it's, it's a small city that he moves across the desert back to Canaan. It, is, uh, it was God's blessing on David that made him rich, and it was God's blessing on Solomon that made him even richer. It was God's blessing because Solomon asked for wisdom rather than wealth. God said, well, I'm going to bless you with wealth too. And, and so we see that as God's, God's hand. In the New Testament, we don't see a lot of examples of wealth being equated with God's blessing. In fact, one of the, one of the examples of a wealthy person interacting with Jesus, the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, have you obeyed the law? And he said, yeah, I've obeyed the law all my life. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing you lack. And it's a hard one. And, and, and Jesus says, what you lack is you need to sell all your possessions and give all the money to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible tells us that the young man went away sad because he owned so much. Uh, we do see that it is a blessing to give throughout the New Testament and in, in, throughout the Bible. Uh, it is a blessing to, to give. Paul talks about the blessing of the church being able to give to the church in Jerusalem, the churches he planted around uh, Europe and Asia, that uh, they were able to give back to the church in Jerusalem. He counts it as a blessing. Paul counted it as a blessing for himself that he didn't have to accept uh, any any offering in in uh, compensation for his ministry, but in the same context, he does say that it's okay 
for ministers to receive a wage from or receive the benefit of their ministry. The Bible, the Bible seems to be a little bit divided then over the idea of, of money being a blessing. Uh, when, when Luke records Jesus' Beatitudes, he records Jesus saying, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has some harsh words to say to the rich. Uh, as I've mentioned, he contrasts the, the blessing that the widow is receiving when she gives all that she has over and against the, the wealthy who give out of their abundance. And, and, um, and so if money should be considered a blessing, it shouldn't be mistaken for, for a blessing without some expectations that come along with it. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so we, we need to be aware that, that any blessing we receive as wealth comes with responsibility. We also need to recognize that wealth is not, is not the number one blessing that God desires to give us as his children. God does not desire to give us money over and above anything else, in fact. There's a quote from Martin Luther that I'll share with you. Luther says, wealth is the smallest thing on earth, the least gift that God has bestowed on mankind. The least gift. This is, this is a hard word for, for us in a culture where we look around and we say, we have so much, we must be blessed by God. Luther says, wealth is the smallest thing. It's the least gift that God can bestow. And so, we, we should be reminded that the Bible does not always consider wealth as a sign of God's blessing. And also, the management or the mismanagement of wealth is often a reason for people to receive God's correction or rebuke or wrath. God, God corrects or rebukes or pours out his wrath on those who misuse money and misuse their wealth. We see this particularly in the Old Testament through the prophets. In the Old Testament, the prophets are the ones who call the wealthy to task. The prophet Nathan goes in, you can almost picture him trembling as he goes in to, to see David, who has used his wealth and position and authority to steal his friend's wife and then have his friend killed in battle. The prophet Nathan in, goes to him and tells a parable about a rich man taking advantage of a poor man, and, and David gets really indignant. And then Nathan says, you are the rich man. We, we see it in the Old Testament prophet Amos. Amos is, is uh, everyone's favorite prophet in the Old Testament. Amos probably has the harshest words of all the prophets toward the wealthy. He calls the wealthy in Israel the cows of Bashan. He calls women that have directed their husbands to take advantage of the poor the cows of Bashan. It's, uh, it's some of the harshest words we have. In, if we look at what was happening in the history of Israel at, those time, at that time, uh, the, the wealthy were charging high interest rates to the poor 
the poor were living on their own family land, typically. They would live on their own family land. They would, they would receive products in order to plant the land, to do the, their own agriculture, but they would receive them at a high interest rate. The wealthy would plan on that high interest rate being too much for the poor to pay back, and then they would have to pay back the loan with a little bit of their land, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, until the wealthy owned all their land, and they made the poor their servants farming the land that had once been their family land. It's enough to make your blood boil if you think about the, the way the wealthy used their power and position to, to make others destitute and to take advantage of them, to get what wasn't rightfully theirs. And it made Amos's brother blood boil. He went and he called these wealthy women who, who were directing their husbands in this process, the cows of Bashan. It's just cruel. And as we look at the history of the, the nation of Israel, this call to fairness that, that Amos was, was putting out on behalf of the Lord comes right before the Assyrian Empire comes through and totally destroys the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And, and uh, it, it wasn't simply the fact that the Israelites had mistaken their wealth for God's blessing that caused them to be destroyed. It was that they, they took their wealth as license to do whatever they wanted to do. They took their wealth as a sign that God was going to bless them no matter what. Or it was a symptom of their lack of trust in God completely. They had begun to, to believe that if they were wealthy enough, then nothing bad would happen. They wouldn't even need God to, to watch over them. And so it's a sin of arrogance, a sin of pride, uh, that they can do whatever they want to because they have the economic upper hand. And maybe the economic sin in all of this is, is like lower on the, on the ladder than all of the other sins of the people of Israel, but but certainly it's, it's among the reasons that God had to, to judge his people. They were violating the Old Testament law. And uh, the, the oppressive economic activity that took place in Israel, it shows the tendency that money has to corrupt individuals and groups. It, money really does seem to, to have the power to capture people's imaginations to, to make them want uh, for the power that money brings or the, the luxury that it can purchase or the illusion of self-sufficiency that wealth provides. The New Testament position on money uh, is, is probably best summed up in 1 Timothy 6. And in 1 Timothy 6.10, we get a, a quote that is often sort of ripped out of context and, and we hear 6.10 says, uh, for money is a root of all kind of evil. But if we read the, the context of what Paul is saying to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 6, we get a better picture of what Paul is talking about. He says, starting in verse 8, 1 Timothy 6, 8, he says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He goes on, he says, Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Eager for wealth, they've pierced themselves 
with many griefs. I think, I think this is probably the, the broadest and best picture we can have of what the Bible, the New Testament particularly, has to say about money. Uh, that we ought to be content, that we ought to not go wandering off looking for money and away from God. When Paul talks about the end times and things getting really bad, also to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he's listing all of the things that are, are going to go really, really wrong before, the, before Jesus returns. And one of the symptoms that things have gone really, really wrong, Paul says, is people will be lovers of money. People will be lovers of money. And, and Jesus says as much uh, in the Sermon on the Mount when, when he says in, in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This really is the biblical New Testament worry about money. When the Bible worries about money, when, when Christians worry about money, the worry is not about how to get it and what to do with it. The worry about the, that the Bible gives us about money is that it would become more important to us than our God. The reality is that Christianity tends to, to make people wealthy. It's just it's amazing. Throughout history, revival, over and over again, revival has been followed by prosperity. Over and over again throughout history, we see it particularly in the 1700s in the Wesleyan revival. It happened among the, the poorest, the down and out in, in the uh, kind of beginning of the industrial age. These people who, who had nothing, who converted to Christianity, started living by the principles of the Christian faith, and all of a the sudden, they, they were out of the lowest rung of society. And it may, be, it may be that God just loves to bless the newly converted, and so he pours out money on them, but it's more probably because, because believers, Christians, tend to spend less money on their vices. We, we tend to spend a little bit less on, on our vices than we did before we were converted. Uh, because believers tend to value industrious, honest labor. Uh, we, we tend to live at peace with others. It, employees who on, uh, value honest, industrious labor and live at peace with others tend to be promoted within an organization. Business people who value honest, industrial, industrious work and and are at peace with others, tend to find more business to conduct. And so it just is a consequence of the Christian life that, that often believers find themselves with more than they had before. You know, we, we also tend to be content. We tend to be content people with what we have. If we follow Paul's advice in, in 1 Timothy 6, we can be content with what we have. Being content is a less expensive lifestyle than keeping up with the Joneses. And so we, we manage to have more. But it's not just the, the symptoms of the Christian attitude toward money that makes us blessed. To a person here, there, there is this mysterious thing that happens. Christine talked about it when she was giving announcements and talking about tithing. 
there is this mysterious thing that happens among believers that those who are committed to, to giving generously in the kingdom, they find themselves with more that can be given. Um, we do not preach what is called the prosperity gospel in this church. We do not preach the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says if you give to the church, what you give will be multiplied and given back to you. There's a famous sermon in the Church of the Nazarene in South America. I hesitate to tell you about it because it's, it hurts my heart. There's a famous talk that, that tells of, of a guy, I've met him, I know him. He gave his pastor an Audi. And he claims that because he gave his pastor an Audi, God gave him a Porsche. Now, if you want to try an experiment... We do not preach the prosperity gospel. We do not preach that an, sowing an Audi means that you will reap a Porsche. We do not believe that. In fact, that's one of the things that I would stop from this pulpit quicker than just about anything if a preacher got up in this place and said, you need to give a little bit more so that you would be blessed. That is not what we believe in this church. We do not believe that God has any sort of quid pro quo with those who give. But then we have this testimony of believer after believer, of person after person, who says, I gave 10% of my income. I needed 100% of my income to pay all my bills. I added them up, and I needed 98% of my income to pay all my bills, but I gave 10%, and then I had more than enough to cover all my bills. Person after person, I, I could bring you up here. I, I've heard a handful of your stories of the times when you said, we didn't have the money to give as a tithe, but we gave it anyway, and then God was faithful and all of our needs were met. If you grew up in, on Park Street in the 80s and 90s like me, you heard your mom say over and over again, 10 minus 1 equals 10 plus. Because when you give a tenth of your income, it seems like God gives you more than, than you could have ever, ever done with the 100% of your income that, that you thought you had. Our faith teaches us not to worry about money. One of the ways that we, we are able to demonstrate that our confidence with our finances is to say, first thing, before I give any, pay any bills or do anything else, I'm going to give 10% of it away. Yeah, I'm going to make sure that, that at least 10% of it goes to the kingdom and to other purposes outside of me. We're never supposed to worry that we'll have enough. We're never, ever, ever supposed to. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. Even Solomon, the most wealthy person who ever lived, wasn't dressed as finely as them. Your heavenly Father takes care of them. He'll take care of you. God has your provision taken care of. Brothers and sisters, sometimes God uses us as a body to take care of you. We are a church that is committed to keeping some money aside to help those in our midst who, who go through a rough patch. If you need help financially, our church will take care of you. We love to take care of our own. We take care of those who aren't our own. We can give food out every other week at the food bank here 
We, we help people in the community when, when they need gas or, or help getting by. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we are here for one another. The Bible commands us very, very clearly. Within the church, we do not have those in need. Every need is met of the brothers and sisters that call First Naz their church home. But we also believe that, that God challenges us to, to do that. You know, that's part of why we give. That, that is who we are. God, God promises to, to give us enough. So when the, when the New Testament teaches us to worry about money, it teaches us to worry that, that we would allow money to take God's place in our lives. That instead of worshiping God, we would look at that bank account balance and we would say, how can I feed you today? How can I honor you, O bank account balance, today? And that we would allow money, the, the New Testament worries that we would allow money to take away our soul. Jesus says, what would it profit somebody to gain the whole world and lose their soul? We can't worship anything other than our one true God. Our one true God is our one true provider. And so we worship and serve only him. And so, this morning we're going to we're going to move toward communion. And uh, communion is an amazing reminder of how God is a physical provider for us. Isn't it? Isn't it amazing that in this meal we feast on the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus, Jesus meets us at the table, hosts us here and feeds us. He says, I, I want you to, to have this meal, which is my body broken for you and my blood shed for you. If you didn't grab the elements of communion when you came in, uh, Ken and Gina are going to walk around with some uh, plates and will serve you. So raise your hand if you, if you didn't get it. Here come Ken and Gina, and they'll make sure that you get served. There's Perfect. Thank you, Gina. As we're, as we're making sure everybody gets served, let me uh, let re- remind you what I remind you every time we take communion. That this is a sacrament that the Lord himself ordained. Jesus commanded him, his disciples to partake of the bread and the wine, emblems of his broken body and shed blood. The feast is for his disciples. And so in our church, we don't ask that you be a member. You don't have to be a member of the church. You don't have to be baptized to Nazarene. We, we ask that you would have repented of your sin and be looking to Jesus as your sole provider, as the, as the God of your heart, as the one that you will worship and serve alone. If that is your, your heart's decision, then we invite you to come and, and take I can't invite you because it's Jesus who is our host. He, he is the one who has set the table for us. He calls all of us believers from all stripes and walks of life to this one table. He is our one host. And he reminds us that we are one body 
as we take this meal. So, let's pray as we prepare to take this meal. Our Heavenly Father, Lord of all mercy, Almighty God, who by your tender grace gave us your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer upon the cross for our sake and our redemption, we ask, God, that you would hear our prayer now. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the ability, the ability to reach out and receive these gifts that Jesus has given us, that by faith we would, we would receive his body and his blood, that we would remember the suffering and death of Jesus that makes this possible, and that we would be made partakers in his sacrifice to forgive our sins and set us right with you, Lord. We remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He blessed it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal was over, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and drink, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is made in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Christ Jesus, we ask now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and wine, that they, they would be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be for the world his body, redeemed by his blood. We thank you, God, that we can come to this table and receive these elements to our soul's comfort and joy. And so it is in the powerful name of the one who gave himself for our sins that we pray. Amen. I invite you now to take the, the bread. I remind you, this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and eat in remembrance of him. In the cup, this is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Will you stand with me and pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been allowed to participate in this holy mystery. Thank you, God, that you pour out your grace upon us to provide for us. The most important thing that you've ever provided for us, Lord, is what we've celebrated here. Jesus going to the cross, suffering on our behalf, taking our sins upon him, that we may be made right with you, God. We thank you for that grace and that mercy. We thank you, God, that you have done that, that you have taken our sin and our shame, and that we are now free free from our sin, free to live in joy and peace, free for our hearts to be filled with love for you and for our neighbors, God. We thank you for that. We thank you for this wonderful symbol that you have given us, this grace that you have poured out upon us. We pray, Lord, now that our attention would be fixed only on you. We recognize that we live in a culture that tries to take our attention in so many ways. 
one of the ways that it, our culture tries to steal our attention and divert our thoughts is on to money. And God, as we've talked about today, we want nothing to take your place in our lives. We, we want God to depend only on you for our provision. We want to never be confused as to, to where, our, where our help comes from. It comes from you alone, God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us to keep our focus on you, to recognize that you are our provider, that all we have comes from you and all we need will be provided by you, God. We ask, Lord, that you would, you would help us in this week as, as we come into this week, this new week, this new year, it's easy for us to, to begin dreaming about changes we'll make, to make goals, to, to make plans for the year, Lord. We pray that you would truly guide us in this process as we consider how you would direct our thoughts. Lord, may we, may we focus only, only on what will bring you honor and glory May, may our intention, Lord, be to be at peace with you above all things. We thank you, God, for, for the amazing ways that you provide for your children. We thank you for this mystery of, of tithing that so many of us can, can attest to, that we've just had enough. Even when it hasn't added up, God, we've seen you provide in, in amazing ways. And we thank you, God, for your incredible generosity toward us. We thank you, God, that we can count on you. We can trust you. <clears throat> and God, that you will be with us and walk with us. And so, Lord, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And it's in his name, Lord, that we will continue to walk each day this week. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. You are dismissed.